January 2011, 32-year-old Molly Bloom returned to New York City after spending Christmas with her family in Colorado. A sense of relief washed over her as she entered her apartment. She was home. The stress of the holidays was behind her. She could now get back to doing what she loved, running the biggest underground poker game in the city. Though it was late, she decided to get the unpacking done and over with before going to bed. Suddenly, she was interrupted by a knock. Bloom assumed that it was her doorman dropping off the mail she'd received during the vacation. Who else could it be at this time of night? Without checking the peephole, she opened the front door. She was greeted not by her doorman, but by a man she'd never seen before. Before Bloom could react, the stranger forced his way into the apartment. He shut the door behind him, pulled out a pistol, and pointed it in Bloom's face. She shook uncontrollably, in total fear. She tried to scream, but the man slammed her against the wall and told her to be quiet. Bloom stared at her attacker in confusion. Who sent him? Sure, she had plenty of enemies, but no one had dared to send someone to attack her before. It finally dawned on her that the man was not wearing a mask, which was a very bad sign. He wasn't worried about being identified. He wasn't there to send a message. He was there to kill her. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on Molly Bloom, a.k.a. the Poker Princess. Last week, we explored how a young Bloom got wrapped up in the Los Angeles underground poker scene. We also saw how her L.A. empire was suddenly ripped away from her. This week, we'll cover how Bloom's game in New York City became even bigger and more dangerous. As it grew, it put a target on Bloom's back, both with the mob and with the United States government. In early 2009, 30-year-old Molly Bloom suddenly found herself out of a job. For nearly five years, she had devoted her life to running an underground poker game in Los Angeles. She had wined and dined celebrities, become close friends with billionaires, and made hundreds of thousands of dollars. But in the blink of an eye, it was gone, at the behest of actor Tobey Maguire, who believed Bloom was getting too big to control, the game was snatched away from her. She knew she couldn't go back to her old life. Returning to Colorado or going to law school weren't options, not anymore. The poker game had given her a taste of a lifestyle far more intoxicating than poring over legal briefs. She was determined to get it all back. But her network in Los Angeles no longer supported her. It was time to find greener pastures. And there's only one city in the world that could match the combination of money and celebrity that Bloom found so attractive about Los Angeles, New York. Initially, Bloom had no idea where to start. 
But as she scoured through her contacts, she came across the name of a Wall Street billionaire who had played in the L.A. game a few times and made millions from it. He was so well-connected that he once asked Bloom to help set a dinner reservation for himself, Steve Jobs, and Bill Gates. Bloom knew when she saw his name that he was the perfect man to turn to in setting up a new table. In the spring of 2009, Bloom hopped on a plane to New York City for a fact-finding trip. She met with the Wall Street billionaire, who told her that there were occasional big games in New York among the people he knew. However, because of the hassle of organizing, the games were few and far between. This was music to Bloom's ears. Without telling him what happened in Los Angeles, Bloom casually offered her services as a game organizer. After all, it sounded like they needed one. Her Wall Street friend liked the idea, but warned her that the other players might not be as interested. Bloom suggested she come to the next game and make her pitch to the other players personally. Her friend agreed. Before Bloom went to the game, she took it upon herself to scour for fresh blood. She explored every Manhattan nightclub and exclusive bar she could get into and sought out potential players. She needed to prove, when she went to the big game, that she had her own network and could reliably bring in new meat each week. She brought along one of her friends, a model, to help entice people to sign up. It worked like gangbusters. The prospective players she met all liked the idea of, as they put it, playing poker run by hot girls. Before she even met the men that made up the existing game, she had a full Rolodex of wealthy New Yorkers who wanted in. On the night of the big game, Bloom dressed professionally, doing her best to look the part of someone who could handle Wall Street executives. Even though she was used to being around rich people, she knew this was another level of wealth above the Hollywood insiders. She had to be extra prepared. She took a cab to a Park Avenue townhouse. There, a man in an expensive suit led her down into the dingy, unfinished basement where the game was in action. Bloom was taken aback by the shabbiness of the venue. The table was rickety. The chipset was cheap. She knew right away that she could improve the game and prove her worth as an organizer. After briefly introducing herself to the players, Bloom sat down to watch it unfold. The game was calmer and less explosive than out in Los Angeles. Players handled losses, even ones in the millions, with quiet acceptance. These men weren't just rich. They were so rich that losing almost $5 million on a single poker hand was nothing to cry over. Only months earlier, the global economy had collapsed in the worst downturn since the Great Depression. But inside that unfinished basement in New York City, you would have never known it. To the man in that room, the economic downturn was barely a speed bump. They were, after all, not just regular millionaires. They were the 1% of the 1%. In addition to her billionaire friend, the players included a hedge fund manager, the son of the richest art dealer in the world, and a pair of Russians backed by oligarch money. Before the night ended, Bloom decided she'd seen enough and left. She knew she could add value to the game and make her organizational skills useful to those rich men. She'd update the venue, schedule games regularly, bring in new blood, and give the entire thing more of the polish that billionaires craved. The day after her introduction, Bloom's billionaire friend called and told her the good news. The players had agreed to let her organize the next game as a trial run. 
Bloom knew she would only have one chance to make a good first impression. If she screwed up the first game, she wouldn't be offered another, and her ambitions of restarting her poker game in New York City would be dead. Bloom went to work, doing what she did best. With help from a maitre d' in Los Angeles, Bloom booked the most luxurious room at the Manhattan Four Seasons. It was a massive suite with floor-to-ceiling panoramic windows, 20-foot ceilings, and chandeliers. She then researched every player, finding their favorite drink, restaurant, and type of cigar. Then she went through her contact list to find two high-profile and wealthy players who she could invite to the game. She settled on Canadian billionaire Guy La Liberté and New York Yankees star Alex Rodriguez. The players arrived at the Four Seasons and marveled at the room and the girls Bloom had hired to staff the game. And she made sure to fluff the egos of each player, asking them specific questions about their biggest victories and most famous accomplishments. Once things got going, the mood in the room was upbeat and positive, especially after Alex Rodriguez arrived. Even powerful Wall Street types buckled at the sight of the Yankee. Everything went perfectly. And by the end of the night, Bloom had made $50,000 in tips. The next day, the billionaire told her that she had won over most, but not all, of the players. It may not have been unanimous, but she'd passed her first test. The trial period was going to be extended. Bloom was confident that in no time at all, it would become permanent. But as Bloom got her operation going, she quickly realized that she wasn't the only big name in the city. Some players had warned her that what she was doing was, in fact, treading on someone else's turf. His name was Eddie Ting, the king of New York City underground poker. Bloom wasn't phased. She reasoned that their clientele was different. She focused on Wall Street billionaires and celebrities, while Ting catered to criminal underworld types. So she ignored the warnings. Over the next few weeks, Bloom spent more and more time recruiting new players and arranging the week's game. It was obvious to the original players that Bloom was the right one for the job. The trial period quietly came to an end. The game was hers. During the trial period, Molly commuted back and forth from LA to New York. But with the game secured, she felt confident enough to make the move across the country. She brought along an entire entourage, which included a personal assistant, a new dealer, a professional player who could be her inside man, party girls, and a professional masseuse. Determined not to let her operations in New York City fall apart the way they had in Los Angeles, Bloom quickly expanded and diversified. She recruited new, money-losing players from all over the Northeast. In exchange for a finder's fee, Bloom reached out to casino connections and club promoters and got them to refer players to her game. The list continued to grow with each passing week. In addition to the big game at the Four Seasons Hotel, Bloom started smaller games twice a week out of her own apartment. These games were her lifeline, her security net if the big game was ever taken away from her. For now, though, she didn't have much to worry about. Her empire in New York was growing steadily. By the summer of 2009, Less than six months after starting over, Bloom was making double, sometimes triple, what she was in Los Angeles. Moving to New York hadn't just saved her poker organizing career. It had given it a total boost. If anything, she began to think that she should have made the transition sooner. But the end of the honeymoon was just around the corner. And before long, 
Molly Bloom would realize that having a bigger empire made you a bigger target. When we come back, Bloom faces some real threats. Now, back to the story. By the middle of 2009, 31-year-old Molly Bloom had made a comeback. After being cut out of her big game in Los Angeles, she'd successfully moved to New York City and set up a bigger, better operation. In a short amount of time, she was making more money than she could ever dream of back on the West Coast. Even with the game established, she constantly recruited new players, ones who had an interest in poker and plenty of money to lose. One new player, who we'll call Gary, was the perfect prospect. Young, wealthy, and impulsive. After only a few hands at his first game, Gary had lost over $100,000. When Bloom asked him what his limit was before allowing him to buy back into the game, Gary arrogantly told her that he didn't have a limit. By the time that first night was over, Gary had lost over $500,000. Unlike other players, Gary wanted to pay what he owed that night. A few hours later, he handed over $350,000 in cash. Though he still owed $150,000 to Bloom, this was at least a start. However, the next morning, Gary texted Bloom that he was contesting the final $150,000. In other words, he refused to pay. Bloom was furious, but there was very little she could do. You can't sue over an underground poker game. Traditionally, to collect on gambling debts, organizers relied on non-legal means, like hiring muscle to intimidate or beat the debtors. Bloom didn't want to do that. It would be crossing a line. Instead of beating the money out of him, Bloom invited him out to party. She buttered him up with alcohol and attractive women before telling him how stressed she was about her game and how much she needed it to succeed. Bloom presented herself as the damsel in distress, needing to be saved. Gary, eager to play savior, agreed to pay the final $150,000. Bloom's manipulation worked perfectly. Despite his arrogance and problematic poker behavior, Bloom found herself drawn to Gary. The two started seeing each other outside of the game, and it wasn't long before they became exclusive. But there was friction in their relationship almost immediately. Gary was controlling and sometimes used the gambling debt he owed Bloom as leverage. Bloom convinced herself that she could handle his manipulative tendencies. But just as she was trying to rein in Gary's abuse, both in the game and in their relationship, a new problem was showing itself. Eddie Ting. Legend had it that Ting had gotten his start as an organizer playing in tiny games around the city with blinds of $2 or less. He quickly rose up the underworld poker ladder and was playing and winning against millionaires. With his reputation as a skilled player solidified, Ting turned to running games himself. Just as he had risen to the top as a player, so too did he rise as one of New York's top organizers. That is, until Molly Bloom arrived. Ting had already known who Bloom was for quite a while. In fact, when he first discovered that underground poker was becoming popular in Los Angeles, he tried to establish his own game. But he found resistance thanks to Bloom's domination of the market. Now, years later, Bloom had moved in on his city. Ting was furious. He couldn't let it stand. 
Ting reached out to one of the wealthy players in Bloom's game and asked him to put a stop to her reign. But the player declined to take any action. He didn't have enough power to push for something like that. The rebuff was a shock to Eddie. He realized that if millionaires and billionaires were powerless to Bloom, perhaps it would be wise to hold off. Instead of coming at Bloom head on, he would keep an eye on her. And when she made a mistake, that's when he would move in. While Eddie waited for the perfect time to strike, Bloom continued to deal with truant players who refused to pay their debts. In Los Angeles, with smaller pots, she could manage being occasionally stiffed. But now, with millions on the line, any significant unpaid debt was catastrophic. One troublesome player, who we'll call Walt, lost nearly half a million dollars over a three-week period and refused to pay a dime. Frustrated, Bloom asked one of the billionaires to reach out to Walt and prod him to pay. When the move worked, Walt finally agreed to settle the debt in cash. But Bloom had to go to Miami to get it. She reluctantly flew the thousand miles from New York to Miami to meet Walt, unsure if he'd actually show up. He did, in fact, show up and handed Molly a bag containing a combination of cash, casino chips, and gold bars. Bloom was annoyed that it wasn't all in cash like she was promised, and when she finished counting it all in front of Walt, she informed him that he was $100,000 short. He apologetically told her that he'd pay her the rest the next time he was in New York City. Not wanting to cause a scene, Bloom accepted. Bloom got lucky with deadbeat players like Walt, men who would eventually cave and pay up any way they could. It wasn't always pretty, but at least it was something. But other times, she was forced to cover winner payouts from the tips she received. It was important to keep her reputation intact, and if that meant dipping into her own pocket, so be it. But dealing with people like Walt made Bloom realize she was going to need even more insurance than just the smaller side game. There was only one real way to protect herself, and that was to take a rake, or a percentage of the pot. In addition to being paid in tips, she would make a significant amount of money off of the game itself. It was a simple and easy way to make sure she wouldn't go bankrupt because of players who didn't pay. She had never taken a rake in LA, but in New York with higher stakes, she felt she had to. So, in late 2009, after being stiffed one too many times, 31-year-old Molly Bloom started taking a rake on her games. She tried to be careful about it, only raking her smaller games and never the big one where millions were at stake. It quickly paid off, giving Bloom some financial breathing room. But it was also illegal. The moment that Bloom decided to take a cut, her operation crossed from the legal gray area into a fully illegal enterprise. Molly Bloom was no longer just one of the biggest poker game organizers in New York City. She was now a criminal mastermind. One weekend in early 2010, Bloom's now boyfriend Gary invited her to organize a game at his house on Long Island. She accepted because she knew it would be a good recruiting opportunity for her own games. Everything started off normal. She arrived at Gary's house, set things up, and waited for the players to arrive. Just as the game was getting ready to start, Bloom noticed there was an open spot and offered to find someone to fill it. Gary waved Bloom off. He'd reserved the last seat for a friend who was coming later. Partway through the game, the doorbell rang. 
When Bloom answered the door to let the final player in, she was face to face with her new rival, Eddie Ting. Eddie was friendly, but Bloom was furious. She pulled Gary aside and accused him of turning this into an ambush. Gary reassured her that Eddie had no intention of trying to steal her game. He just wanted to play. Eddie himself said the same thing. He wasn't there to fight Bloom. Instead, he wanted them to work together. As the two biggest poker organizers in New York City, they could both benefit from a partnership. He'd bring in big players like himself to replace anyone who decided to stop playing or refused to pay. In the process, everyone involved would continue to make lots of money. As she let Eddie's offer sink in, Bloom was torn. On the one hand, she knew that Eddie was her biggest rival. If she let him in, he might try to swipe her game out from under her. On the other hand, she was always in need of big players. Having Eddie as an ally rather than an enemy would be extremely helpful. Despite her reservations and distrust, Bloom decided to take him up on his offer. With Bloom and Eddie's combined powers, the games became even bigger, with more players and larger profits. On top of the increased tips, Eddie persuaded Bloom to rake the big game. Now, in a single evening, Bloom was netting six figures. But what shocked Bloom was that she and Eddie were getting along so well. She felt as though the two of them, as the biggest poker organizers in the city, understood each other better than anyone else. They even became friends. On the flip side, her relationship with Gary was deteriorating rapidly. Beginning in 2010, Gary began demanding a portion of Bloom's tips from games that he played. And when Bloom refused, he stopped paying what he had lost at the tables. In the late spring of 2010, she tried to take care of the Gary problem quickly and cleanly. She checked into a hotel under an alias so he couldn't track her down and broke up with him via email. As she suspected, Gary flew into a rage. He scoured the hotels he thought she might be at, searching for her room. Bloom didn't budge. It was over. The morning after she broke up with Gary, Bloom woke up to a text message from one of her players. The big game was going to happen without her, at Eddie's. Bloom couldn't believe what she was reading. It was happening again. Gary had gone to Eddie and told him of the breakup. Like a snake lying in wait, Eddie slithered in and cut Bloom out. Bloom was enraged, angrier than she'd ever been in her life. She wasn't going to let what happened in L.A. happen again. The game was everything to her. It was all she had. She was going to fight back. Coming up, Molly Bloom fights to salvage her New York game. Now, the conclusion to the story. In the summer of 2010, 32-year-old Molly Bloom woke up in her hotel room to discover that her high-roller New York game had suddenly been taken away from her. Her emotionally abusive ex-boyfriend Gary had sided with her rival, Eddie Ting, and helped him swoop into Bloom's territory. Outraged, she swore to fight back. Unfortunately, Bloom had an uphill battle. Though she still had the smaller games out of her apartment, she had been cut out by the billionaires. And as 2010 rolled on, 
it became clear that Eddie was endangering the small games too. During the back half of 2010, Bloom was contacted by two New Jersey gangsters who had heard about her game and her situation. They offered to help her collect from any players who were slow to pay and make sure that no one would mess with her or her game. Bloom could tell that this wasn't an actual offer. It was a protection racket. Becoming involved with the mob was the last thing she needed, so she politely declined. Instead, Bloom took a break from the city to regroup. She spent Christmas 2010 in Colorado with her family. But the trip wasn't the respite she had desired. Because her mind was focused on her problems in New York, she was irritable around her family, lashing out. She needed to go back to New York and reclaim her empire. But if Bloom thought she could turn things around in the new year, she was sorely mistaken. The night she returned to New York City, Bloom was attacked in her apartment. A man forced his way into her apartment, slammed her head against the wall, and shoved a pistol to her forehead. Bloom was convinced she was about to die. She didn't know who had sent this man, perhaps Gary, perhaps Eddie, but he was going to put a bullet in her head and that would be it. To Bloom's surprise, the man didn't pull the trigger. Instead, he ordered her into the bedroom. Terrified, Bloom told him she had money, lots of it. The man growled for her to get it. With trembling hands, she opened the closet safe and handed over what she had. Tens of thousands of dollars in cash as well as jewelry. The man then grabbed Bloom and growled that if she hadn't been rude to his friends, this wouldn't be happening. Suddenly, in that moment, it made sense. This man didn't come from Gary or Eddie. He was sent there by the Jersey gangsters Bloom had rejected. This was their payback. And handing over the cash and jewels wasn't enough. The man brutally beat Bloom until he felt the message was received. He gave her one last warning, then fled the apartment, leaving Bloom bleeding on the floor. She had no one to call. Not the police, not her family, nor any friends. Molly Bloom was on her own. Bloom laid low in her apartment as her wounds healed. A few weeks after the attack, she received a call from one of the gangsters who asked if she was willing to meet now that she might, in his words, see things clearer now. She agreed, dreading the moment she'd have to face the men responsible for her beating. However, that sense of dread turned to a sigh of relief. The day before the meeting, Bloom's tormentors were among a huge group of mobsters rounded up by the FBI. The investigation was completely unrelated to the poker ring. By sheer luck, Bloom never heard from the Jersey gangsters again. Bloom couldn't believe her good fortune. It felt as though after months of betrayals and losses, she'd finally won something. However, that sense of victory would not last long. Around the time of the gangster raid, Bloom discovered that the feds were after her too. In Los Angeles, one of Bloom's former players was facing prosecution for running a Ponzi scheme. During interrogation, the player told the FBI of Bloom's game. Bloom flew back to California for a series of depositions. Since Bloom hadn't taken a rake in LA, she technically hadn't broken the law. 
So, when the depositions were done, she wasn't too concerned. But she was now on the FBI's radar, and instead of slowing down and letting the heat die, she chose to ignore the warning signs. Instead, she felt empowered to reclaim what Eddie had stolen from her. In February 2011, Bloom returned to New York and built a new high roller game with a different set of wealthy, mostly Russian, players. These players had endless financial resources and were no doubt involved in shady dealings. But Bloom chose not to look too closely at the source of their money. They were a means to an end. In early March of 2011, a few hours before one of her big games, Bloom received an ominous phone call. The voice told her not to go to the game that night, then hung up. Bloom assumed the call was from one of her enemies trying to break up her game, maybe Eddie Ting or even Gary. She chose to ignore it and continued getting ready. But the call was soon followed by a text message from one of her players. Reading the text brought her entire world crashing down. The FBI had raided her game. Bloom was in a stupor. She had never considered the authorities a threat. It seemed like they were more concerned with the Ponzi scheme than a poker game. But reading the text again, she realized she had been very wrong. Heart pounding and filled with fear that the FBI was going to crash through her front door, Bloom instructed her driver to take her away. She was so terrified that the only thing she could think to do was go home, go back to her family in Colorado. When she arrived at her parents' house, she collapsed in her mother's arms and wept. The next morning, Bloom discovered that her bank account listed a balance of negative $100,000. Her assets had been seized by the government as part of a broad investigation into organized crime in New York City. In particular, the feds were looking at the wealthy Russians who played in Bloom's game. Bloom laid low in Colorado for nearly two years while the investigation went forward. She knew there was no coming back. At 33 years old, time had finally run out on her poker organizing career. She needed to move on with her life. So she went back to the city where she had started it all, Los Angeles. On April 16, 2013, Bloom woke up to the FBI outside her apartment, waiting to arrest her. She had 20 seconds to willingly surrender, or they would kick down her door. Bloom was instantly surrounded by a dozen FBI agents in full assault attire. They let Bloom get dressed before handcuffing her. She was now officially under arrest. She was flown back to New York City, where she and 33 others, including Eddie Ting, were charged with various crimes. Bloom was charged with operating an illegal gambling business. Initially, Bloom wanted to fight the charge and pleaded not guilty. But when faced with the consequences, a 10-year prison sentence and millions of dollars in fines, she realized it was a losing battle. Bloom chose to accept the charges against her. She was resigned to her fate, fully believing she was going to prison for years. When it came time to hear her sentence on May 3rd, 2014, 35-year-old Molly Bloom feared the worst. The judge, however, showed some kindness to her. She was sentenced to one year of probation, 
200 hours of community service, and a $200,000 fine. But she also had to pay back taxes to the IRS on every dollar she'd made through her game. Eddie Ting, meanwhile, received five months in prison and was ordered to pay $2 million in restitution. Bloom's memoir, Molly's Game, was released two and a half months after her sentencing and became a bestseller. When Hollywood executives approached her with interest in turning her memoir into a movie, Bloom demanded to meet with Aaron Sorkin. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Sorkin, after meeting Molly, said he'd never met someone so down on their luck and who seemed so confident. Bloom saw it as a compliment. Sorkin went on to write and direct the film adaptation of her memoir with Jessica Chastain in the starring role. The film went on to gross nearly $60 million, a respectable amount for a Hollywood movie, but chump change compared to the amounts that once regularly passed through Bloom's hands. In the years since her criminal conviction, the now 41-year-old Molly Bloom has worked as a business and entrepreneurial motivational speaker. And she's reportedly still millions of dollars in debt to the IRS. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Molly Bloom, in addition to the many sources we used, we found her autobiography, Molly's Game, to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 